Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. I've discovered that life is filled with choices. Every day, we make hundreds of choices. It seems like every hour, we make countless choices. And I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I get this feeling that I am on choice overload. In other words, because there's so many choices that we have to make, I shut down. And I don't even feel like I can make choices anymore. Even this morning, you had a multitude of choices to make. You're here, so you made the choice to get up and come to church. Once you got up, you had to choose whether you were going to eat or not. Once you chose whether you're going to eat, you had to choose what you were going to eat. And sometimes you just open up the refrigerator, don't you? Or the pantry, and you just look. And then after you ate, you had to choose what you were going to wear. Now, for men, that may be a little bit easier. But for ladies, I mean, that can be horrifying. That can be terrifying. And then you made it to church, and now you've got another choice. You've got to choose whether you're going to go to sleep or whether you're going to pay attention. And for some of you, for some of you, when you leave here after church, you've got another choice. You've got to choose where you're going to eat lunch. It seems like every single moment we're making choices. And what I've discovered is that successful people oftentimes limit their choices. Did you know that? Successful people have learned how to limit their choices. Mark Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder of Facebook, he, he wears the same thing every single day. He's a billionaire. He wears the same thing every single day. Now, when I told my wife that, she said, well, I hope he washes it. And I said, well, babe, he's got like probably five gray T-shirts. And he just wears that same gray T-shirt and the same kind of jeans and the same shoes every single day. Now, if you think that's strange, some other successful people have done the exact same thing. Or Steve Jobs, you know who he is. He's kind of successful. And Albert Einstein, that's pretty good company, isn't it? I read several weeks ago, Leo Wildrick, who is the co-founder of Buffer. Now, you may not know what that is, but it's a social media management company. He not only wears the same thing every day, he eats the same thing for dinner every night. I mean, he's got it down to a science. He eats this piece of chicken, he eats a sweet potato and some type of vegetable. And every single day, he eats the same thing. Then you say, why does he do that? He does that to limit the choices that he has to make. listen Listen to what he said. He said, as an entrepreneur, there are hundreds of micro decisions, choices I need to make. And decision fatigue, choice overload what I call it, can be a huge problem. 
So I try to eliminate any decisions, any choices I don't have to make. The fewer decisions, the fewer choices you have to make, the better decisions, the better choices you will make. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Especially when so many of the decisions, so many of the choices we make really don't make that big of a difference. But understand, our choices matter, even even the smaller ones. Someone once said it this way. They said, life can be defined by the sum total of your choices. We make our choices, and then our choices make us. The fact of the matter is, we are products of the choices we make. The parents you have, the people you know, the abilities you were born with may have an impact on your life, but in the end, none of them are as important as the choices you make. And sometimes I've come to discover that that we make the wrong choices. And choices and, and making the right choices is clearly seen in the life of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. Now, and if you haven't been here, we're in week three of Close Encounters. A look at four stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. Stories in which an angel enters the physical world from the spiritual world and communicates a message from God. Now, now in case you haven't been with us, I want you to understand that angels are real. They are powerful spiritual beings created by God who both serve God and speak for God. And even though they don't often enter into the physical world because they are spiritual, there are times that they do enter into the seen realm. But let me also remind you that just as there are angels that serve God and speak for God, there are fallen angels, there are demons who oppose God. And we need to be very careful to test the message that we receive to test what we hear, to see whether it really comes from God because demons can pose as angels of light and attempt to confuse us and attempt to mislead us. Now, last week, we looked at Mary's story. But today, I want us to look at Joseph's story. And I want you to listen to what it says beginning in verse 18 because this is so important. Listen to what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her. He had no physical relationship with her until... She gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, the Bible tells us that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. 
Now, that was much more than a simple engagement. You see, to the Jewish people, marriage involved three stages. There was the arrangement, there was the engagement or, or the pledging, the betrothing, and then there was the ceremony. Now, the first stage was the arrangement, and, and that is when the parents got together and they decided who their kids were going to marry. Now, that probably wouldn't work out too well in our day and age. But this is the way that it was back then. Parents would get together and they would decide, my son will marry your daughter. My son will marry your daughter. My son will marry your daughter. And that was the arrangement period. And then there was the engagement period. But understand, this engagement period was much different. It was much like being married. As a matter of fact, to break off an engagement you had to get divorced. You, you didn't simply say, hey, I don't want to marry you anymore. Here's the engagement ring back. No. To break off an engagement or a pledge, you had to get a divorce. It was a legal binding contract. The only difference was that the couple didn't live together and they did not consummate their marriage until later on. And finally, there was the marriage ceremony. And the marriage ceremony often lasted for a week. And let me tell you, it was a ceremony with dancing and drinking and a lot of fun. And, and for a week, they would celebrate this new couple coming together to get married. Now, we are told that before they came together, that is, before the ceremony and before they slept together, before they had sex, Joseph found out. That Mary was pregnant. Now stop right there. Can you imagine how Joseph felt? I don't know about you, but, but if that happened to me, I would feel hurt. I would feel angry. I would feel confused. I would feel betrayed. I mean, I would have this rush of emotions going through me. And I would begin to question her. What kind of woman is this who is sleeping with someone else? And to be honest with you, I also question myself. I would say, what's wrong with me? Why didn't she save herself for me? Now, at this point, Joseph had three options. Because they were already legally married, they were engaged, they were pledged, he could divorce her publicly. And to divorce her publicly would, would set her up for disgrace and would also, by Jewish law, set her up to be stoned. He could divorce her quietly and show compassion to her. Or he could choose what nobody would choose, and that is to go ahead and marry her. And so Joseph chose the second. He chose to divorce her quietly, that is, until God revealed what had happened. The Bible says an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She hasn't been unfaithful to you. She is still a virgin. The baby that is growing inside her womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, if that wasn't enough of a shock, then the angel said this, I want you to give him the name Jesus. And the reason I want you to give him the name Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. And then the angel added this to it. People will call him Emmanuel, 
Because he is God with us. When Joseph woke up, the Bible says that he did exactly what the angel told him to do. Now, as we take a close look at this story, we discover four choices Joseph made. Choices that allowed God to use Joseph in an incredible way. But we also discover two choices that I believe are necessary for all of us to make. The four choices that Joseph made are wise. They're, they're good choices. But there are two choices that we see here that, that we're not going to make it unless we make these choices. Now, first of all, what are those four choices? Here they are. First of all, Joseph chose God's word rather than the world's way. He chose God's word rather than the world's way. Look at verse 19. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Now, let me stop there. You see, every day we have to choose. We have to choose whether we're going to follow God or we're going to follow the world. And Joseph had the same choice. That word righteous, it doesn't mean that Joseph wanted to live a good life. That's not what the word meant. The word righteous in that day literally mean, meant that he had a desire to follow God's law. He wanted his life to be guided and directed by God's word. You see, Joseph wasn't just a Jew in name. Joseph longed to honor God with his life. His religion was more than some show that he put on for people. It was a major part of who he was. And because of that, Joseph wanted to live in accordance with God's word. Now, here's what I've discovered. Everyone... Everyone has a compass that guides and directs their life. For some people, that comfort is themselves. They have set themselves up as the final source of truth, the final source of what's right and wrong. I choose what is right and what is wrong. For others, it's society. Whatever the world at the time tells us is right, whatever the world at the time tells us is wrong, then, then we follow that. We follow society. There are others who, who follow some teacher from the past. And, and this pe teacher from the past has taught this, this truth, this, this moral guide for us to follow. And, and they've lived their lives by that. But everybody has a compass. And the compass we live by determines what is right and wrong in our lives. Now, the problem is, if your compass is off, you will be off. Uh, do you follow me? Because with a compass, north never changes. Regardless of where you are, north is always north. If you're down south, north is north. If you're up north, north is north. If you're on the bottom of the sea, north is north. If you're at the top of the highest mountain, north is north. North never changes. But if your compass is off and it's not working properly and it tells you that north is somewhere other than north, you're going to head in the wrong direction and you're going to be off. 
You see, we've got to make sure that the compass that is guiding and directing our life is accurate. And Joseph, by being a righteous man, had decided that the compass of his life was going to be God's Word. And so when he was deciding, what do I do in this situation, he went to God's Word. Now, what about you? I mean, how do you determine right from wrong, good from bad, truth from error? You're going to either choose God's Word or the world's way. Joseph chose God's Word. Second, Joseph chose mercy rather than justice. Look at the latter part of verse 19. And did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. When Joseph was faced... With expressing grace or enforcing the law, Joseph chose grace. Now, and under the harsh penalty of the law, Mary could have been stoned to death, but, but Joseph didn't want that. Even though from his perspective, she had been unfaithful, she had sinned not only against God, she had sinned against him in a horrible way, Joseph determined that he was going to express mercy. Now, what we discover in God's Word is that's always the heart of God. Sometimes we don't see that, but, but it's always the heart of God. And when Jesus walked on earth, He showed us that very clearly. You remember the story of the woman called in adultery is found in John 8. The self-righteous religious leaders came to Jesus with this woman. She was probably half-naked, and they drug her out into the street, and she had been caught in the very of adultery and they came to Jesus and said, the law says stone her. What do you say? Jesus knelt down in the sand and began to scribble. We don't know what he scribbled, but he began to scribble. And, and they kept on badgering him and hounded him. What do you say we should do? And Joseph looked up or Jesus looked up and he said, okay, stone her. But you who have no sin, you be the first to cast a stone. And the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they all dropped their stones and left. Jesus looked up and he said, woman, where are the people who condemn you? And she said, they're no longer here, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. And then he said, go and sin no more. Do you remember John 3.17? We remember John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We quote that verse. We know that verse. But listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Jesus came to save us. And as Christ followers, our message to the world is not a message of condemnation. Our message is a message of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. I've met so many people who claim to be Christ followers. Who follow the letter of God's law, but they haven't learned how to couple the letter of the law with God's grace. 
especially when it comes to other people. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, most of us have a double standard, don't we? We really do. We, we have a double standard, how we want God to deal with us in regard to our sins and how we deal with others in regard to their sins. And we can't do that. We can't. We always fall on the side of grace. Jesus did. And he never did it by watering down the word. He always knew how to share truth, go and sin no more with grace. I don't condemn you. We've got to learn that. You see, Joseph chose mercy over grace. What about you? When you look at other people, when you look at people who you think are heinous, the sins that they are committing are disgusting. How do you look at them? How do you treat them? Are you willing to take that, that homosexual that is practicing their sin and, and hug them and say, I want you to know God loves you? Are, are you willing to sit down over a cup of coffee with that that person that is selling pornography, let them know that God cares. I'm here to tell you, hear me, nowhere in God's Word can we see Jesus sitting in the temple secluded from the evil, wicked people of the world. We see Jesus hanging out with them, loving them, showing them mercy and compassion and grace, never condoning their sin, but as he was with them, always showing them love and grace. Now, can I say that's tough, isn't it? I mean, it's tough. Because right is right and wrong is wrong, and, and we want to live by right. But we've got to learn how to couple right with grace, mercy, and love. Third, Joseph chose obedience rather than convenience. Look at verses 24 and 25. Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, took Mary home as his wife, but had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, when Joseph heard from God, he did what God said. He didn't argue, he didn't negotiate, he didn't whine, he didn't say, that's going to be tough. He obeyed. And by the way, that's how Scripture tells us that we really love God. It's, it's not how often we go to church, though that's important. It's not how thick our Bible is. It's not how loud we sing. It's not how expressive we are. It's by our obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And obedience is not always easy. As a matter of fact, obedience is seldom easy. It leads us to difficult places. It leads us to dangerous places. It did for Joseph. From the moment he obeyed, everything changed. People looked at him differently. They either looked at him as the unrighteous man who had sex with a woman before Mary and then married her to cover it up, 
Or there's the man who married a tramp. He was looked at differently for the rest of his life. He had to face difficulties because of who his son was, because of the choice he made. Obedience is seldom convenient, but it is always right. And so the question is, are we willing to be obedient even when it's inconvenient, even when it's costly, even when it doesn't make sense? He chose obedience rather than convenience. Fourth, Joseph chose to listen to God rather than question God. Let me give you three verses. Chapter 1, verse 20 says this, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. When they had gone, speaking of the wise men, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Look at chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, having been warned in a dream. Three times, an angel appeared to Joseph, giving him a message from God. Now, some of you are saying right now, well, let me tell you, if God sent an angel with a message from him, And I heard that message from that angel. I would obey and do exactly what God told me to do. I would listen. Would you? Would you really? Because we have the completed, the written word of God. We don't have to wait on a word from an angel. We don't have to wait on some heavenly vision or or, or some unusual dream. God has given us His word. And the question is, are we willing to listen to it? You see, I don't think God hides his will from us. It's not like we have to unlock this puzzle to discover what God wants. He wants us to know his will. And and because he wants us to know his will, he makes it clear to us. And I believe that God speaks just as loudly today as he spoke back then. The problem is... We just aren't sensitive to his voice. We aren't in tune with his frequency. And because of that, we miss his message. Now, here's what I know. If you want to hear from God, you've got to do some things. You've got to get into God's word. You've got to be quiet. You've got to be still. And you've got to listen. God speaks today. Through His Holy Spirit. And He speaks to us through His Holy Spirit, through His Word. The question is, do we listen? Now, how do we determine whether the message we hear is from God? Because, remember I told you that there are fallen angels that want to deceive us and confuse us? And and I've heard people say so many crazy things, and they said, well, God told me that this is what I'm supposed to do, or I believe this is God's will, and it's contradictory to the Word of God. And so how do we find out what God wants for us? Well, three things. These are simple. First of all, you got to read the Word. You're never going to discover what God says until you read His Word. 
Second, you've got to pray and listen. You've got to pray where you confess, you come clean, you get ready to hear God, and then you get still and and listen. And then third, you seek godly counsel. And when I'm talking about godly counsel, I'm talking about people who are who are further along in their walk with God than you are. You don't seek counsel from Oprah, Dr. Phil, or some crazy person who who has just been a believer for a day or two and, and they think they know all the spiritual truth in the universe. You seek godly counsel from people who have been walking with God and they've been in His Word for years and you allow them to speak truth into your life. And when you do that, you'll hear from God. Now, hear me. If we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to be used by God, we need to make the same decisions that Joseph made. We need to choose God's Word rather than the world's way. We need to choose obedience rather than convenience. We need to choose to listen to God. We need to choose to do what Joseph did. But I want to give you two more choices that we see in this passage. Choices that, that not only are necessary for us if we want to make a difference in the world. These choices are necessary if we want to make it. In the world. You see, there are many people today who aren't going to make it in the world. So two choices. Let me give them to you. The first choice is this. You've got to choose to let Jesus save you from your sins. That's a choice that you've got to make. Listen to what it says in Matthew 1, verse 21. The angel said she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus Because he will save his people from their sins. Now the name Jesus means Jehovah saves. But you need to understand that that the name Jesus was a common name in Bible days. Much like John today. When Joseph and Mary named their son Jesus. They didn't have people coming to them and saying. What did you mean when you named him Jesus? When, When they heard them call their son Jesus. They didn't stop and go. Jesus is this the Savior? Of the world, they didn't do that because throughout their little small town, there were a number of little boys running around playing who were named Jesus. And so when the people saw Mary and Joseph and their son Jesus, they didn't know there was anything special about him because they hadn't received the message that Joseph received. You see, Joseph received a message that let him knew that this Jesus would be different than any other Jesus. Every other Jesus reminds people that God saves. But this Jesus is going to be the one who does save us from our sins. When Jesus was named Jesus, his name was no longer an ordinary common name. His name became a one-of-a-kind name. That's why it says in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You see, the Bible teaches that each of us has a debt 
that we have to pay called sin. We've rebelled against God. We've sinned against God's plan. And the payment of our debt is death. And everybody has the debt. And everybody's got to pay it. You and you and you and and your children and your children's children are born with a sin debt. The payment is death. They're going to pay it. Just suppose you had a debt. A debt of a million dollars. It's a lot of debt, isn't it? And I came to you and I said, you know, I don't want you to have this debt hanging over your head. And so I pull out my checkbook and I write you a check, a personal check, for a million dollars. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't accomplish a thing. It doesn't matter what I put on that check. I don't have the ability to pay your debt. And I can write that check. And I can give it to you. And you can take it to the bank. And they're going to check my account. And they're going to go, you're crazy. He can't pay your debt. He doesn't have a million dollars. But suppose Bill Gates writes you a check for a million dollars. And you take it to the bank. And they go, is this real? We go, Bill Gates gave it to me. And they check and it's from his account. And it's his name and he wrote it. And you know what they'll do? They'll take a million dollars from his account and put it in yours. I can't pay that debt for you, but Bill Gates could. Hear me. The Bible teaches that there is no one else who can pay your sin debt. But Jesus, he is the only perfect one who has ever lived. He is the only one who has the ability to pay our debt. And what he did was take the righteousness from his account and place it in our account so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He pays our sin debt. And I don't have the time to to go into this and try to convince you, but everyone has that debt. Everyone. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against God. And because of that, we all need a Savior. And the only one who can save us is Jesus. There aren't multiple saviors. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can do that. Second. We not not only need Jesus to to save us from our sins, we need Jesus to enter our world. In verse 23 it says, They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there is a theological truth here and there's a practical truth here. Theologically, it tells us that Jesus didn't have his beginning in that stable over 2,000 years ago. He is, he was, and he always will be God. Jesus was born in that stable on that first Christmas, but he didn't have his beginning in that stable. Christmas was God coming to earth to live among us. At the moment of conception, God became a man. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the eternal being who knows everything, who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but but before that a baby and before that a fetus. Inside the woman's 
body, but practically. It doesn't just tell us that God became a man. It tells us that God entered our world. It tells us that God isn't some distant God out in space who doesn't know what is going on in our life or doesn't care what is happening in our life. The Bible says He has made His dwelling among us. In other words, you don't have to go through life alone. You don't have to hurt alone. You don't have to struggle alone. You don't have to pick up the broken pieces alone. Our God is with us. And He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. If, if we invite Him in. In the book of Revelation, there is a verse where it's speaking to a church, but... But I think that the verse has multiple meanings. The verse is this. It's Revelation 3 verse 20. It says, Behold, Jesus is speaking. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Fellowship with him and he with me. There are some things that are applied in that verse. Before we can ever respond to God, we've got to hear His voice. How do we do that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin, convicting us of our need for a Savior. We're never going to be saved until we know we need to be saved. And we're never going to be saved until we know that Jesus is the Savior. And the only way we can know that is through the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, and then notice what it says, and opens the door. You you see, Jesus isn't on the outside knocking the door down. He's on the outside knocking. And he says, if you will open the door and let me in, I'll come in. And I believe, hear me, I believe he knocks on the door of every single person. He wants to come in and... And do life with you. He wants to come in and be your savior. But he's not going to knock down the door. He's not going to force himself upon you. He's going to show you his love. And show you his mercy. And show you his grace. And say please. Let me in. Let me love you. Let me be your savior. And he does that to anyone. And he does that to everyone. Regardless of where we've been or what we've done. How far we've fallen. And he'll do it for you. You see, Jesus wants to save you from your sins. Jesus wants to enter your world and walk through life with you. But you've got to let him. So will you let him? I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior, I want to challenge you and encourage you and beg you and plead with you to do that this morning. Totally surrender yourself to Him. Humble yourself to Him. Acknowledge your sin. Accept His love. Allow His Holy Spirit to change you. You can pray this prayer. Dear God, 
please forgive me. I know I am a sinner. I've rebelled against you. Please forgive me. I don't want to live separated from you anymore. I believe you love me. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin. Please save me. I'm giving my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take control of my life, I pray. Amen.